Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are about parents killing children and children killing parents. It is all in the family this week. An adult son beat his elderly father to death, all because dad wanted to cut off his monthly allowance. The son is 44 years old. Dad wouldn't pay, so he ends up paying with his life, of all things. The first trial ended in a hung jury, so prosecutors tried him again, and they got a first-degree murder conviction. But first, a mother accused of decapitating her six-year-old son and the family dog has been found mentally unfit to stand trial. She claimed that she was being attacked by the devil and... She actually confessed to the murder, according to police. But a judge has ruled that she is mentally incompetent to go to court. So the question now is, where is the justice? We are recording this on Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. Our guest is Dr. Judy Ho, clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, a TV and podcast host, a dear friend of the show, a fan favorite. Judy, welcome back. Thank you so much, Anna. So great to be with you again. And uh, unfortunately, of course, there's these horrific cases to talk about, but you are just always um, shedding light on these inexplicable cases. Like, why? how could a parent do that to a child? How could a child do that to a parent? And obviously, we're going to be digging into that. I don't know the answer to that. Honestly, Judy, I don't. And in fact, I'm hoping that at the end of this episode that maybe we could do like a little mini therapy session with you. And those of you who want to join in right after the comments section, just to get some balance from this, because it is so horrific what we're about to discuss. Um, I know this is your area of expertise. And I always wonder how you handle such dark, horrible, disturbing things. And yet you're like a ray of sunshine. I think that that's only way to move forward is, you know, you have to have some kind of semblance of self-care, even in the middle of all of it, so that you can still continue to do this work. But of course it haunts me and it makes me sad, you know, sometimes hearing about these cases and then thinking about it afterwards. It's just, I, as a new parent myself, I just like can't put my mind around these particular cases, especially. Yeah. You have a little baby boy, what, seven months now? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it gives you new perspective, doesn't it? Definitely. All right, Judy, let's get right into it, and then we'll have therapy. (laughs) Uh, Sounds great. (laughs) um, Judy, here's what I find fascinating about our first case and this ruling of incompetent to stand trial. I would say at least half of the murder suspects, right, that we cover on this podcast, they all, half of them are always, oh, filing a motion here and there, incompetent to stand trial, I was crazy, I didn't know what I was doing, blah, 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 right? And never, almost never, does that stand. In this case, the judge has said, oh yeah, 
she is not fit to stand trial. So where is that threshold that she's actually met it, which must be extraordinary? Yeah, so this is a great question. And I think that sometimes people think, okay, great, you know, maybe this is just an excuse that people can use all the time and abuse it. And actually it's very hard to abuse this particular uh, type of classification. And there has to be a whole number of different things that have to happen. So first of all, you have to determine that they're in the middle of some type of a mental health illness or condition where essentially they didn't know right from wrong. So it's very different from someone, for example, who has a state of psychosis, right? Which sounds like she may have. And this is uh, an excuse because what, they have a mental illness that's not being treated. No, that's not the threshold. The threshold is they have to have this mental illness where perhaps they are in a psychotic state where maybe they're hearing voices telling them to do something. And at the same time, they have to know that that was something that they should be doing and that that has nothing to do with having taking a human life, something being wrong. Though Both of those things have to be met as opposed to, oh, even though I'm having these thoughts and delusions, there's a part of me that knows that it would be wrong to kill a person, right? So most of the time when people have psychotic illnesses, they know right from wrong. They know that they shouldn't be shooting somebody with a gun or killing somebody. But there are those small, small cases where they literally don't know right from wrong in the middle of their psychotic state or in the middle of their mental illness. So those thresholds have to be met. And this is not just something that a lawyer can argue. They have to send this person out to a professional evaluation with a mental health expert who has to determine these things. And then the judge reviews everything and decides if the evaluation was done in a great way, that everything's been covered, that it's factual. And then the judge makes that final decision of whether or not that's admissible or not. Absolutely fascinating, because, again, we hear this, you know, either being abused or, you know, being used falsely. And in this case, it's so rare to have this this um, declaration that she is unfit. So we're talking about 35-year-old Tasha Heff. She faces first-degree murder charges in Missouri for the brutal decapitation of her six-year-old son, Carvel Stevens. The responding officers, I'm going to think, Judy, probably required a lot of therapy because when they got to the house, and we'll get into that, they could see through the window a child's head severed from the body the body was somewhere in the kitchen and they're banging the door trying to get in there while she she's not opening mother's not opening the door she's singing and the louder they banged the louder she sang and then they just had to force their way in because they could see i mean there was blood in the front of the door and there was hair and there was stuff you know on on the doorstep You know, it was just like horrific. And the minute you, you know, you see this, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what those officers went through. I I just, how can you be prepared for that? There are a lot of things you you can be, be, right? But a a six-year-old son, you know, with his head cut off? Right. And of course, I know that um, we might be getting into this a little bit later, but just the PTSD that these individuals might suffer after seeing something like this and trying to still do their job. But they must be having flashbacks of what they saw. And again, I, I know that there's training. It prepares them to say, hey, you never know what you're going to get. But this is just so horrific that I think even with all the training in the world, even as a professional law enforcement you're not you're not going to be able to erase that thought from your mind and you're going to need essentially crisis counseling to some degree probably to be able to still continue to do your job and to not that it affect you um, in your personal life as well. Yeah, I think so. So what's interesting here is that it's the mother, Tasha Heff, who called 911. So she calls 911 on February 15th of 2022. This just happened a few months ago. And she t- told the dispatcher that the devil was trying to attack her. And this is what she said before hanging up. So police are dispatched to her Kansas City home. What's interesting is the police had been out there something like five days earlier because there had been, I guess, a burglary reported there. Police arrive at 11.45 p.m. And as we said, they saw blood on the front steps of the house. They saw blood and hair on the front door. Um... They knew not only that there was a woman inside the house, but they believed that there were several children 
in the house at the time because of the report last week and that they knew enough that there were children in the house. So now their concern is they see one child's head through the window and now they're wondering like, oh dear Lord, what's happened to the other children in this house? It couldn't possibly be a very good outcome. So as we said, they're banging, she's singing, and finally they break in and she, the mother, is covered in blood. Head to toe, covered in blood, is a mess. And her hands are cut and they have wounds. They find the child's body, like I said, upstairs and out by the kitchen. And there were bloody knives, a screwdriver. Downstairs in the basement, the dog, the family dog, has been decapitated. So um, it's just a horrific, horrific scene. Judy, the amazing thing here is it is physically very difficult work to remove the human head from the body. And if what we're finding, as far as what police say, that there were just maybe two knives and a screwdriver, that was difficult and hard to do physically. It's, how did she pull this off? I mean, it couldn't have happened in five minutes. No, this is going to take a a long time, a lot of physical exertion, um, very bloody, very gory. And it's astounding to me that at some point she didn't say, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I should stop. This is very different from somebody who pulls a trigger impulsively and then completely regrets their decision. Unfortunately, the person on the other side is already wounded or dead. This is a very intentional state of mind where no matter how hard this is and how long it's going to take, you're still going to do it. And that is what's so scary and frightening about this particular case. I just, I, I mean, I, I understand what they're saying that she had to be out of her mind to do this, but I am really struggling. And we're going to talk about this. I'm really struggling with the possibility that that there may not be what many people will feel is justice in this case, right? Because a child has been murdered, a dog has been killed, and this is horrific, horrific, horrific. So police were, of course, concerned that there were other children in Tasha Hafe's house. We've been unable to figure out exactly how many children she has. We believe that she has three children, but we also believe that the little boy had four siblings and it could be from a series of blended families. And because of the blended situation, um, we know there were multiple children in this house, in or around this family. Now, police say that Tasha confessed to everything when they got her down to the police station, that she said that she killed her son, this is according to the police, in the bathtub before decapitating him. And again, the matching weapons were found by the bodies. She, when she confessed, according to police, waived her right to having an attorney there. So I got to think this is all going to play in. It's like, so you're telling me now she's incompetent to stand trial. So you're also going to tell me that this confession, which sounds to me like a person who is describing to you what they did, this means they knew what they were doing because they're telling you what they did. I'm having a hard time buying this one, Judy. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, thinking about the fact that she waived her right to an attorney. I mean, that's also just another clue that she does not have sound decision making. And part of that determination when somebody actually meets that threshold for not being competent to stand trial. There's also this related um, category or criteria where they essentially can't even assist their attorney in preparing their own defense. And that's just something that it does not sound like this woman has the wherewithal to do. It doesn't sound like she would be able to talk about things in a logical manner able to explain herself in any way, not to make an excuse, but just even to explain what happened to her and what was her state of mind that day where you would actually kill your child first and then decide you still have to decapitate him also when he was already dead. Right, right, right. Well, Tasha's family, many family members spoke to the Kansas City Star newspaper. And according to them, the mother, Tasha, 
battled drug addiction and depression for years. Now, some family members said that she seemed fine in the days leading up to the murder and that she was a loving mother who would never harm her children. However, other families tell a different story. Um, Tasha's mother, Sherry, told a newspaper that her daughter had been having hallucinations and breaks with reality. But here's the other thing. She apparently had a problem with meth and that when she would be on meth is when she would have hallucinations. So, Judy, what do you read into this? Well, it sounds like if this person was correct, that probably what Tasha was suffering from is methamphetamine psychosis. And this is a condition where essentially not only when the person is high on meth, but also even when they're coming down from meth or maybe even a week or two after they use meth. So sometimes people think, oh, substance induced psychosis only happens when you're actively using, but it actually also can happen for up to several weeks after the last use. And if she had this problem, who knows what state of mind she was in? Maybe she had just used, maybe she used a couple of days ago, it doesn't matter. But what methamphetamine psychosis is, is that they basically, because of the drug effects on neurotransmitters, on the way that your brain works, that is what ignites these psychotic symptoms. And 40% of users of meth have methamphetamine psychosis. So it's actually a lot of people. And here are some of the other related signs. So it's not just the actual delusions the hallucinations. It actually also includes agitation, violence, um, which might explain to some degree how she can carry out such acts of violence and maybe almost have no idea what she's doing or, or certainly have a lower threshold for doing these things in the first place. The impulsivity of somebody in methamphetamine psychosis is also very significant. And over time, if somebody has substance-induced psychosis, sometimes they shift over to what we call a primary psychotic disorder, which, which is something like schizophrenia, where essentially even when they're not using drugs, they're still going to have some level of delusional thinking or the hallucinations. And this may be where some people are saying, well, she seemed kind of fine. You know, it may be at a lower level um, when she's not actively using, but then when she uses, it makes that psychosis so much worse. And that's maybe the state that she was in when she carried out these horrible acts. So it's possible, Judy, if I'm understanding you correctly, that the drug abuse and usage could alter her brain to the point where there could be a permanent form of this psychosis. Would that also include paranoia? Like, Absolutely. it's the devil. The devil's trying to get me. Absolutely. And this is what I mean by sometimes they seem kind of okay because of the fact that even when they're not using they have these thoughts, but maybe they're not as significant or maybe they're not as prominent. Or sometimes a person is even hearing voices saying, don't tell anyone about what we're saying to you because this is a secret. And then so then there's a way for them to maybe even suppress some of that when they're, again, just interacting with people just for a few minutes at a time, maybe up to an hour. They're able to kind of keep some of the worst symptoms away from casual observers. Obviously, if somebody lives with them, if they're with them for longer periods of time, that's going to come out. But I've seen many, many cases where people can kind of hold it together for a few minutes. And so you think that they're fine. They're talking to, you know, police, uh, the law enforcement officers are talking to doctors and they seem OK. They go home and actually it's quite active. It's just that they were able to hold it together in a very brief amount of time. So this further, you know, causes conflict within me about whether she's capable of standing trial, because now I'm just like, you know, there are a lot of people who claim um, that they were in a drug induced haze, fury, whatever, and they don't get to claim temporary insanity or whatever, you know, casual form you want to describe this that I know is not a medical term. Uh, that's why I'm like, Hmm. I'm having right. a problem here, Judy. I'm having, I'm, I resent this woman a lot. I know she's I know. only charged. I know she's only charged, but given the evidence so far, like, unless the devil came in and killed the children, right? Himself. 
evidence is not circumstantial in this case. We nope. have actual evidence. I get it. Everybody needs to have their day in court, but I feel the same way as you do. And like you said, there's nothing that's going to happen, though, where people are going to feel like justice was served. But we obviously want it to be served in the best way possible. And I'm with you. You know, whenever I hear that somebody's going to invoke the uh, the plea that they were incompetent um, to know right from wrong and competent to stand trial, like that is one of the things that you worry about is, OK, I really hope whoever did the evaluation knows what they're doing. I really hope the judge knows what they're doing. You know, you just hope and pray that it's all going to work out and I, you know, again, it is very hard to abuse it, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened, even with the best intentions of judges and professionals who are evaluating the person. There could be still be slip ups. You know, we're all human. So I, I really hope in this case, it's an actual valid uh, reason. And, and Judy, so we're clear for everyone here. It's it's a six month uh, almost stay, if you will where she's being sent to a psychiatric hospital. And in this six months, and we've seen this in other cases where trials have been delayed because the mental competency is unclear and they're trying to treat the individual to get them to a place where they are capable. So I presume that that's what the goal here is. I think that that is the goal because you still want the person to eventually be able to stand trial. So you want to give them the treatment in a space where they're actually going to follow through with the treatment, right? So you can't send this person home and say, take your medications because a lot of individuals who are um, actively psychotic and have these symptoms, their voices, again, with a paranoia, they're going to say, don't take the medicine. It's poison. Don't take the medicine. They're trying to dull your brain. The voices are telling you actively to not go to treatment or to take treatment. So of course they have to be in a, essentially a locked facility where there's going to be somebody observing this person, taking the medication, having them go through the treatment process, hopefully getting them to a point where they're no longer psychotic and to a point where they understand morality, where they understand right from wrong. And I want to be very clear about this. Not every individual, obviously, who has a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia is violent. Um, We know that. Um, It's still a very, very small percentage of those individuals. And also people think, oh my gosh, schizophrenia, that's a death sentence. No, If you are in treatment and you follow through, you can have a very active, productive life. The problem is when people stop taking their medication. And with something like a psychotic illness, you have to take medication. This is not something where you can just go to talk therapy and, okay, I figured it out and I no longer have psychosis. You know, talk therapy is helpful, but it's not really the bona fide gold standard treatment when somebody is actively psychotic. And uh, her mother, Tasha's mother, also told the newspaper Um, in addition to these breaks with reality that she was seeing. Now, here's the other thing that we want to make sure is that Tasha Hafes lived far away from her family, like hundreds of miles away from parents and other family members, in case you all are about to say, why didn't someone jump in there right away? So a lot of this is happening kind of remotely. But yes, that's a very reasonable question. Your daughter's having a break with reality, having hallucinations. There are children in the house. You should be very, very worried. So one of the older children said that mom had been yelling at people and calling them the devil. So she was hearing voices. It's not like the older children were not aware of this. And as we see in cases like this, um, because I don't know where the children are if they're in protective services because there are different fathers. And for example, um, Carvel's father, according to published reports, is currently incarcerated. So he would not be able, obviously the son has been murdered, but I'm trying to explain how it's unclear where everyone has gone, where the children have gone. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about what those other children saw and experienced. And I presume all of that will come out in trial if there is one. Right. Yes. And I I really do worry for the state of these other children, wherever they are. Um, This is going to be something that's going to be very, very difficult to come back from. And just the instability of wherever that placement is, even if they're back with their natural fathers, um, there's still that sense of instability. What's, what happened to the mother? What did we witness? There's just so much to go through for these young people. 
uh, I am very, very, very worried about their long-term trajectory because this is not something that they're just going to overcome. And this is probably going to take a long, long time before they can really make sense of it and to be able to move forward. There is no sense. I mean, I don't think there's anything. Uh, I don't think there's anything you could say to me that's going to make sense, right? No. You just don't. No. Just don't do this. So the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office has charged Hafes with first-degree murder. And, and, you know, initially, this is before this last ruling, they said, look, we don't want her out on bail. I agree with that. That's a good point. So um, when this happened, because it affected the community so deeply, because it's so horrific, that the prosecutor acknowledged how gruesome the crime was and said that the office would do everything in its power to bring justice and not to shrink away from our responsibility. So this again, we talk about justice all the time on this program. So here now we have the defendant, the suspect, Tasha Hafes, who on May 27th was declared mentally incompetent to proceed with trial. And um, now she's in the care of the Missouri Department of Mental Health. And they're going to have six months to try and restore her. And I'm sure that this is a very complicated thing that the whole community is trying to deal with. It's like, is this woman getting a pass? Right. And I think even if this particular statute was invoked because it should have been, people are still going to think that she's getting a pass. It doesn't matter because of how horrific the crimes are. And because now there's a delay essentially before we can actually see any form of justice, right? People want answers now. People want to know what happened. They want to know what could go into the mind of somebody that that could cause them to carry out such horrific things. Mm. I don't think anyone's going to understand. No, no. And as you said earlier, there's really never going to be justice in this case. There's never going to be, nothing's ever going to feel right in this case. Um, But we are going to watch this one. And as you all know, if you're regulars, when we say we're going to watch things, we do and we update as things go along. Judy, our next case is out of California. Now, in this case, a son, this is an adult son, has been convicted of killing his father in a very brutal way. Almost pretty much mirroring what we just heard in, in the case of the little boy who was killed by his mother, right? It's like, it's the reverse now. So here we have 44-year-old Leighton Dory IV. Um, he's been found guilty of killing his 71-year-old father, Leighton Dory III. They both have the same name, so I'm going to try my best to make sure that this is not too confusing for all of you to follow along. The father was found dead in his home in Rancho Santa Fe, California. Um, Leighton, the son get this. He's been living in France. Oh, who's been, who's been bankrolling Leighton's little life, you know, in France, mommy and daddy. (sighs) Now mom and dad are divorced. Mom continues to support Leighton and his travels. Dad, the person who's been murdered here, dad was done with him. And in fact, Dad said, I'm not going to pay you your monthly $1,000 anymore. So son Layton came back to California to have a talk with his dad, who, and apparently they had a very bad relationship to begin with. He hadn't been to the house in 10 years, said the stepmother. So (laughs) what do we do with this? Here we have a son who's been convicted of strangling and beating his 71-year-old father to a pulp to the point that his face was unrecognizable when his wife found him at the bottom of the stairs. Judy, it's like, what do we do with this? This is so crazy because I think there's been more and more discussion about this idea of failure to launch these adults who are basically just for some reason, can't take on adult responsibilities, don't have their own job. You know, they they can't take responsibility financially. They don't have what we wouldn't consider normal adult relationships. And essentially the parents are still taking care of the child, even though they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and oh my gosh, maybe even 60s. So this is a classic example of that. And we have people in the mental health field who 
actually work specifically with these families. And one of the messages that you tell these families usually is you got to put boundaries down. At some point, the bankroll has to stop because if you don't pull that, they're never going to learn responsibility. Now, obviously, in 99.999% of those cases, that is an absolute right advice because that is how that person is going to finally become an adult. You would never think that if somebody got this kind of guidance or advice from friends or even a professional, that it would end in the father being murdered in this grotesque way, right? You would imagine, yes, of course, relationships are gonna be conflictual. They're gonna protest, they're gonna be upset yeah. with you, but right. you don't expect this. No, you don't. You don't expect this at all. And clearly, you know, I don't know um, how wealthy they were, but come on, if mom and dad, while you're 44 years old, can bankroll your four year stay in France, that is not cheap people, okay? No. So this is a family with means and access. So of course, the relationship between father and son, um, according to those around, had been strained for such a long time that the son had not been to visit this home where the murder occurred in 10 years. So the stepmother here, who is married to the father who was killed, Kimberly. Kimberly says that her husband paid for the son's college, for rehab, $20,000 to fix his teeth, and yet he was not done because in addition to that, he was giving him $1,000 a month. And I mean, the kid, the kid, he's 44 years oh. old, uh, wanted dad to bankroll some kind of a business scheme that he had that obviously this is going to be it, dad. It's going to launch it all. I mean, can you, you, you just know it. You, this, this conversation has been had millions of times in a, in all sorts of families, whether of means or no means. Right. Um, so Layton's mother, this would be the son, the son's biological mother paid his rent couldn't have been cheap in France, mm -hmm. and then gave him $1,200 a month in spending money. Wow. Help me out. Again, as I say, Judy, this is so I'm absurd. just astounded at how living large this man has been all his life, probably. In France, also just a, essentially, I guess, what is this called? I mean, a stipend, a, a allowance just for doing nothing. Yeah. Hello, and, get a job. Yeah, and this is crazy. I just, uh, it's, oh. and it's so sad because it sounds like despite all of the things that his parents provided for him, he didn't even think that it would be important to maybe, oh, come home and visit every once in a while. Maybe um, be nice to the people who are bankrolling your life. Pay them a visit, you know. Oh, well, mom relations. took care of that. Here you go, Judy. So after the four years in Europe were up because daddy stopped, um, the son returned to San Diego, supposedly to find work. Well, yeah, because maybe you wouldn't have a work permit to work in France or the European Union. Mm. Mm. Isn't that convenient? Oh, mom, dad, I can't because I don't have a legal mm. right to work here. Help me. Mm -hmm. So the biological mother purchased him his airplane ticket to return to California and she bought him a black Jeep Renegade because he's going to need a car to drive when he's here. Um, on Friday, May 26th of 2017, Dory IV arrived at the house of his father and his stepmother. Again, the wife is Kimberly here. And they were apparently quite surprised at the arrival of Layton Jr. because they thought he was still living in France. Well, he shows up in the driveway of the couple's home. The son then informed the father and the stepmother that he was staying in, stand in San Diego before driving out and venturing to Los Angeles to find work. I'm sure that felt kind of good. I'm sure the dad is like, oh, okay. A little late in life, but the kid's growing up. <laughs> right, right. We're moving in the right direction, finally. That's what, right? Exactly. Tell people what they want to hear. They're masters of that. Tuesday, May 30th, Kimberly and Layton Sr., this would be the dad, they begin their day as normal. They had plans to meet the son for lunch. Kimberly, the wife, goes out to run some errands while um, the father tended to chores in the garden was his favorite thing to do was to be in the garden. Okay, around 11 a.m. that day, Kimberly calls her husband to say, hey, I'm on my way back. 
And um, the husband says, LB's here. That was how he referred to the son. So mm. she knows that he is present in the house, that the son is present in the house. Remember, they're all supposed to have lunch. Here's the most interesting part of this. Kimberly arrives home and she says that she sees the son's black Jeep in the driveway. She enters the house, doesn't get a response. So she figured, oh, okay, maybe they took another car. Then she looks around. By the time she like runs around the house, then the black Jeep is gone. So then again, now she's thinking, oh, I must have just missed them. They must have just gotten into the car. They're going to lunch. Where are they going to lunch? She starts calling her husband. Her husband is not answering the phone about where they're going to lunch. So... At this point, nothing too suspicious. And this is what I think is so sad. It isn't until she maneuvers around the house that she finds her husband's body laying on his back at the bottom of a stairwell. And she said that the injuries were so horrific that she could not recognize his face. So his injuries were, there were fractures to the spine, neck, and ribs. He sustained a broken nose, a broken jaw. Some of his teeth were missing or here's the part that's unclear they were on the ground next to the body did they just like fly out or did someone pull them out i'm just saying i'm just saying um the bruises on his left hand looked like um a pattern of a boot heel like he had been stomped on according to the coroner's report So later on, Kimberly, the stepmother, testified that she always feared um, that her stepson was violent. Um, She claimed that he had mental challenges and problems, even suggesting that he may be paranoid schizophrenic, but apparently this did not become an issue at trial, and there have been two of them. So Kimberly then calls 911 um, and reports the death, and then they start looking for the son. Well, he's not again, all that bright. He ends up at a family house or cabin in Idlewild, which is in the mountains, uh, not too far from the uh, place of of the murder. So they eventually find the kid, kid, the 44-year-old who acts like a three-year-old, and they charge him with murder. So I'm, you know, this is the part that's also fascinating, Judy. So there's a trial in 2019, and Junior, the son, um, it's a hung jury. One juror could not convict. So the Mm. prosecution decides to try it again. And that's always a tricky thing because it's difficult. More years have passed. Many, you know, it's always a challenging thing. Get this. For the second trial, Leighton Junior, the son, the 44-year-old, decides... This is a man who probably has never had a job in his life. <laughs> says, I will represent myself because I'm that smart. Mm. Crazy. Now that's crazy. That's just plain old oh, crazy. Yeah. yeah. And what a surprise he lost. <laughs> you know, I mean, you see cases like this and you think, why are you denying counsel? But sometimes these individuals, they are that narcissistic. They really think that they can defend themselves well. I mean, that really is in their minds a good decision. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And he had a play. He had a move. And this was his move. So he was in this trial. He was trying to explain to the jury that it was actually self-defense. He told the jury, this is the son. He tells the jury, my father was abusive. He was a horrible father. And in fact, when I came home to visit him, he's the one who attacked me and lunged at me. Remember, dad is 71. He's a very fit 71. But there is a big difference. Um, and if dad had lunged at him, Judy, and he had pushed back, I don't think his, he may not have really died. Do you know what I'm saying? Not to the, so the, the, the body, the injuries to the body did not match the description of, I pushed him back. Right. He, so Leighton Jr. had an answer for that, of course. And um, so he claims that, he panicked and that he tried to stage his father's death as suicide thinking, oh, I need to get out of this. So he does that. And then when he realizes, hmm, that's not looking right. That's just not looking right. Then um, he decides that he's going to stage 
the death as if he had fallen down the stairs. And he said in moving his dad's body around through these two scenarios um, is what caused him to have such severe injuries. Do you buy that? That is a terrible excuse. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is terrible. And I, again, I think this is what happens when you try to defend yourself in the court of law without an attorney. Uh, maybe if you had an attorney, the attorney would say, you know what? That doesn't actually make sense, especially given the state of the body that we found this body in. It doesn't, that story is not going to track. So even if you say that, you know, swear up and down that that's what happened, this is not what we're going to be presenting to the court because it's not going to make sense to them. No, and you're going to have to present expert testimony to support this theory of yours. And, you know, it is possible. I have no idea what the relationship was with the father. If the father was abusive, that's a horrible thing. If the father was abusive, it could perhaps explain all sorts of challenges that Leighton Jr. has been experiencing his entire life. I have no idea. But at some point, you have to stop blaming daddy. And you got to get on with your life and put your big boy pants on. Absolutely. And I think whatever is the case here and how he all of a sudden turned violent when it didn't sound like the family expected this at all from him. You know, this is unfortunately something that I don't think anybody could have really foreseen because he'd been so out of touch with this family for 10 years. Yeah. So if it's right, if his mental state was decompensating over the last couple of years, who would know? Yeah. Well, he and should he have just means. stayed. He should have stayed in France. Right. Right. And, just and, right. in France. Right. And he had means. Right. So, again, mm -hmm. people are maybe often, uh, sadly, um, willing to maybe overlook certain things like, well, that guy was odd. But, well, he still paid for the drink, the food like they're not mm -hmm. going to bother him. You know, he it's like he still had the means to essentially go about life and not essentially end up on the street where people are saying, wait, there's something really going on with this person. It's it, it seemed like he was kind of doing OK, probably for, for most casual observers. Well, I mean, who isn't when your parents are paying for you to have a nice life in France for four years, and then when you get home, mommy buys you um, a car and everything else? Give me a break. Well, the jury was not convinced with any of this garbage, and they convicted Leighton Dory the fourth in June this month. <laughs> this month of 2020, convicted of murder in the first degree, and the murder charge also carries special circumstances of torture which was argued by the prosecutors. His sentencing is scheduled for June 29th at mm. the end of this month in special circumstances in California means you can ask for the death penalty, even though it is no longer being enforced. But it is something that, you know, it, it's an extra, it's an extra charge. It's an enhanced charge, um, the special circumstances. So um, most likely he will be facing, even though he hasn't been sentenced yet, life without parole, for the murder of his dad. How'd that work out for you, Leighton Jr.? Yeah, well, he lived it up really well until this happened. So, you know, don't we don't have we don't definitely feel very sorry for the guy. You know, oh, he had yeah. a good life before this. My goodness. No, no, no. It's just so sad. It's just so it is really, really sad. sad. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about on our social media. Our producer, Will Updike, is here now, and his lighting is a little bit American Horror Story. What, what you got going on there? A little Hitchcock thing. Yeah, very terrifying lighting for a pretty bizarre story. So this one is coming out of Alabama. We have a woman accused of intentionally crashing a truck into the mobile home that her boyfriend was in. Um, you know, sounds like a country song in the making. But according to a news release from the Piedmont Police Department on Monday, May 30th, at just before 4 a.m., officers responded uh, to a report of a crash. When they were at the scene, they reportedly learned that Rhonda Young crashed an international commercial truck into a mobile home. I don't know a lot about about vehicles, but this sounds like a very big truck. Uh, so upon further investigation, authorities did learn that Young had gotten into a domestic argument with her boyfriend before the crash, which reportedly prompted this whole thing. Now, the boyfriend was allegedly inside the home and he had to be transported to the hospital for his Ooh. injuries. Non-fatal, 
Um, and two other occupants were also inside the home at the time of the crash. They have not been identified, but they are not harmed, according to police. So Rhonda Young was arrested and charged with attempted murder and two counts of attempted assault. She remains held at the Calhoun County Jail on $78,000 bond. But man, truck into the mobile home. Heck of a way to end an argument or just a way to make an entrance. But uh, let's see what the people had to say. Uh, so Mr. Countdown uh, agreed that this did sound like a, a possible country song. He wants to know, is this song on Spotify? Which if it does get there, I hope that the Piedmont Police Department, you know, they get some royalties or something yes. because this was a well-written report like this. This headline is is a little catchy. I'm, I'm probably going to be humming this one in the shower. Shortcake also uh, made the classic country joke. If you replay it backwards, he's OK. The trailer doesn't get destroyed and she's just backing away. Mm-hmm. which maybe would have been the better decision uh, after yes. after the argument. Uh, Isaac T said, if you don't like my driving, stay out of the trailer, which Fernand G wanted to know, was the dog OK? There's always a canine present in these situations, which <sighs> nothing was reported. I really hope that there wasn't a dog involved in this. Uh, no reason to think that there was. Uh, and so if you see the the mugshot of the woman, which we'll, we'll, we'll post for the people watching on video, but I'll describe it for our audio listeners. I mean, she looks like a woman who has just crashed a truck into a trailer intentionally. Um, seems like maybe she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. She's got a black guy, so a little swollen. Uh, you know, appears like she was in a car accident. Uh, but the Vagabond Witch wanted to know, I wonder what looks worse, her eye, the truck, the trailer, or the boyfriend. Honestly, toss up there. Um, I couldn't really find any more images of uh, the trailer after the incident. Uh, but if I do, I will keep everyone updated on social media. That is going to do it for today's comment section. Uh, thanks for having me, Anna and Judy. Great to see you. <laughs> thanks, Will. We'll see you next week. All right. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Okay, Judy, it's time for our mini therapy session here that we promised. If you all want to bail, bail. Judy and I are going to talk for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Because it's always so enlightening. Um you know, I, I don't want to delve back into all the darkness that we discussed earlier. It is very dark. Um, but for those of you who are familiar with you and follow you on Instagram, you're constantly giving, giving us tools and things to do, whether it's gratitude. And you had one a few weeks ago about, you know, wake up in the morning and start writing down the things that you're grateful for, you know, to kind of help you. And I know that sounds very simple, but these are all tools and tasks. So, so Judy, I have to admit that I I feel like the world is crazy right now. And Mm -hmm. then when we talk about these decapitations, and I feel like there's so many of them and parent killing child and child killing parent, it's like, it's horrible. And, and I feel I feel like this is happening more, or maybe it's just because I do a podcast and after 200 episodes, I feel like I hear about it so much. Yes. What do you you think, Judy? Yes. Well, I think that there is something to the fact that there's a 24-hour news cycle feels like going on here, but also we're getting the news from so many different ways. You know, we can get it by looking on articles on the internet. We get it from social media. We get it from traditional TV. We get it from podcasts. We get it from so many different forms. And of course you are smack dab in the middle of it because of the fact that you host this show. And we really do have to essentially have this intention to take care of our mental state every day because the stress is not going to stop. Um, for any of us. There's community-wide trauma at all times, then there might be some personal stresses and trauma that you're going through. And so it's important to intentionally set up a a win for your mental state every day. So gratitude was one part of it. And what I love to do is the three things when you wake up. What three things am I grateful for today? Some days are going to be little things. Some days will maybe bigger things, but it's really about having that practice and that intention to help your mind set up for the rest of the day in a more positive fashion. Throughout the day, I also think it's really important to engage in what we call practical mindfulness. Mindfulness is a buzzword, but it's there because it works. However, people are saying, well, mindfulness doesn't work for me because it's meditation and I'm not a meditative person. Well, mindfulness and meditation only, that's just one example. There's a lot of different ways to do mindfulness. Mindfulness just means going about your day in a way where you're just focused in the present moment. That's not gonna happen the entire day, but you can create little moments for yourself and build it into things that you're already doing. So I love having coffee. I drink coffee every morning and I make sure that that's my mindful moment for the day. 
I drink my coffee without also writing to-do lists, without also being on the phone, you know, just give yourself those five minutes, you know, so anything that's already in your routine, do it mindfully. It can even be things like washing dishes, taking a shower, brushing your teeth, you get the point. And then finally, engage in activities and engage in content that brings you joy and positivity. So you may not be able to shield yourself from all the stresses that are going to happen throughout the day, but you can intentionally set aside five or 10 minutes just to watch a funny YouTube video. I love puppies and kitten videos. I mean, who doesn't? Oh yeah. Just set yourself up for that by making sure that you're engaging in something joyful and happy and positive, just a few minutes a day. And again, making an intention to do so that is really going to help you to orient your mind in such a way that you're not constantly in this fight or flight where you're thinking, oh my gosh, what's the next horrible thing that's going to happen? You're essentially giving a buffer for yourself to have more resilience in your everyday life. Thank you, Judy. You're just so inspiring. Honestly, if if you are not following Judy on Instagram, I highly recommend that you do because I always find something and I really try and listen. So when Judy says something, I'm like, Hmm. What the minute, you know, I look at it and your video or your post or however it is you put it together. Uh, and then I try to incorporate it because at that very moment I have connected with you in a truly meaningful way. I know you're talking to thousands and thousands of people, but in that one moment, I feel like Dr. Judy Ho is talking to me and telling me, here is my, you know, prescription for you today, Anna, (laughs) get out there and please fill this prescription. You'll feel better. Oh, thank you, Anna, for being such a supporter of my work and for even trying all of the techniques that I put out there. I'm so glad that some of them have worked for you. Oh, absolutely. So, Judy, where can people find you so they, too, can get these little tools to help them get through the day? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Judy Ho, and you can find out more about me at drjudyho.com. Excellent. And I know you're working on a bunch of projects. You have your book behind you there. What's your latest book if anybody's looking for some books? Well, I actually just closed a deal with Hachette Book Group on another book. And yeah, I know I'm so excited. And this book is all about attachment. So if you um, understand anything about attachment, it's really just about these early relationships in our life with caregivers and important adults. And sometimes people can feel like that didn't set them up for success. And my book is all about how you can change your life around in your career, in your health, in your romantic relationships, friendships, and even family relationships by focusing on techniques and tools that will help you to turn that insecure attachment back to a secure attachment so that you can live the best life possible. So really excited about putting that book together and it should be coming out sometime next year. Oh, Judy, congratulations. We're so happy for you. That's marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Great news. Um, I know how you find the time to do all of this. <laughs> We're so excited for you. And you can find me at Anna G News. I don't have any tips. <laughs> I just have random videos about Chihuahuas. I love life. your Instagram, though. And it always <laughs> puts a smile on my face. So you need to follow. Everybody needs to follow Anna because of that. Because it's just it's fun. You just have so much joy in all of your posts. And I really enjoy them. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, everyone. Um, Remember, you can get all episodes of our fabulous podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have True Crime Daily. We have the companion piece, which is my favorite case, which I really love. It's a real deep dive with authors on crime cases. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you can also sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. Remember, don't do crime.